Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton season three, now playing only on Netflix. My heart just kind of was drifting away from from jewellery and from jewellery design. And I think as a creative and especially as a creative namesake founder, that's a really scary thing to admit to yourself. And I just, I, I wouldn't and couldn't. So, you know, I'm like, at the time, I just remember thinking, oh, no, this is just a creative block. This will pass. And, you know, it just kind of got a bit dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And I think that, you know, I, by the end of 2017, I designed 12,000 pieces of jewellery. So it was something I could do logistically with my eyes closed. But I think as a creative, if you're designing just with your hands and not with your heart, that's where there's a really big disconnect. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the formidable Samantha Wills. You likely know Samantha's name from her eponymous jewellery line, Samantha Wills. Back in 2004, Sam decided to invest her last $500 to showcase her jewellery, jewellery she was then selling at the Bondi markets at Australian Fashion Week. People fell in love and very soon she was overwhelmed with orders. Three years in though, despite boasting a successful and very popular business, Sam struggled to keep up with demand to such a degree that she found herself $70,000 in debt. So how did she turn it all around? And why, in 2017, did she decide to close, rather than sell, a $10 million business? In this chat, we go everywhere from burnout to chronic illness to broken relationships to business. It is a big one and we were so grateful for Sam's generosity and time. So here's Samantha Wills. Samantha Wills, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Sam, we want your recommendations. What are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to someone listening? Well, obviously Taylor Swift has given us everything that we needed this year with folklore. I um, That is like on repeat. Like I don't just say that like once or twice a day. I'm like probably like 50 times a day I have that since she released it. Like mega fan here, mega fan. <laughs> Love it. What are your favourite songs? Do you have like a favourite standout song? I mean, I it changes day to day. I love Betty. I love August. I just she's just just so brilliant. Um, you know, music aside, I think the way that she tells stories, the way that she engages, she's just has such a brilliant mind. So I love everything she does, and this album is just next level. I love that. I think you know you're amongst Taylor Swift fans as well when you come yeah, to the podcast. Zara <laughs> and I are a little bit fanatical every single time we touch on her. Sam, tell us about your childhood. What are the standout memories from life as a kid? Uh, well, I'm an only child, so I think that, you know, as a lot of people make up invisible friends, I would make up invisible siblings. 
So I would like beg my parents, like I just desperately wanted an older brother. I was like, mum, like at night, I'd just pray, mum, please can I have an older brother? She's kind of like, that ship has sailed. But yeah, I was a very creative kid. Yeah, just my parents kind of gave me free reign of my bedroom. Like I, I could paint the walls, I could hang troll dolls from the roof, like whatever I wanted to do in there. So yeah, very creative childhood. When did you start sort of playing with stuff that looked like jewellery? Were you like, were you painting as a kid or were you kind of playing with beads or what were you doing in those early years that sort of led to where you ended? It up. Yeah, well, when I was 11, my mum actually put me into uh, beading classes at our local craft shops. I'm from Port Macquarie, a tiny town on the mid-north coast in New South Wales, and uh, she put me into these beading classes, which were like $8 for half an hour or something, and I think that she really wanted to get rid of me for the school holidays for a little bit of peace and quiet, and it really was the cornerstone of where I learnt you know, jewellery making. So that was when I was 11 and then mum and dad had a, a clothing store when I turned 12 and mum gave me a spot on the counter to sell jewellery from. So really had like a little jewellery business going from, from 11 or 12. What were you like in high school? Did you like conventional classes like maths and English and all that kind of stuff or were you the kid that was stuck in the art room all the time because art and creativity was just where you wanted to be and the mindset you wanted to have all the time yeah absolutely I mean I barely finished high school I was useless in in any class that had you know a a maths or or science base to it so I was always in the art classroom you know and back in I was in high school in 1999 which I realized sounds like and, and a whole other world ago but the internet really wasn't a thing when I was in high school right and you know when you kind of knew what you saw. You didn't have this transparent view into what was out there. So, you know, I didn't know that creative director was even a, a job. I grew up around really blue-collar, hard-working people. So I was like, all right, you just get a job and creative is kind of your hobby. It, it, you don't make money off the kind of the creative. I didn't know. So, yeah, so I, I barely finished high school, didn't go to university and just thought I was destined to have a, a job for the rest of my life. I want to know, what did you want to do then? So did you have your eye on a different job? I just, well, when I left high school, I got a job at Proud's the Jewelers. I know there's a, a jewellery theme that's quite strong in what I'm talking about, but it, it really didn't appear that obvious at the time. I wanted to be a dolphin trainer, which I realise now is, is a terrible choice. And, you know, through high school, I actually was in Port Macquarie, we had this, I call it a poor man's Disneyland because it was, it's called Fantasy Glades and it was like four acres of enchanted rainforest, but really it was like a, a swamp with like mosquitoes the size of like pigeons and had all these backyard kind of Disney attraction. So I was actually Cinderella at Fantasy Glade. So I was like, all right, well, maybe that's my step into something in tourism and hospitality or like, seriously, I, I did everything through high school. I had a job as a promo chick on a local radio station and my, my on-air name was Sammy on the Street, which I look back now, I'm like, I definitely sound like a streetwalker. So <laughs> I've, I've kind of done bits of things. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, just just a string of jobs. So yeah, I didn't I don't know. Tell us about the first time you sold a piece of jewellery then. Who was your first customer? I mean, back then it was literally in the playground. It was when kind of in grade five when I did my beading classes, it was when the Chicago Bulls were like, you know, huge. The NBA was in, Michael Jordan was huge. So I had this loom and I'd actually make these bracelets that said words on them. So, you know, I'd take orders. It was like $3 and you'd get like a, a Michael Jordan bracelet made by me. So <laughs> that was back in the 90s, I think. You know, when I, you know, started to take it more seriously and was down at the markets and things, it was, you know, very surreal that people would pay money for something that I'd made on my dining room table. So, and I think even at the, at the peak of my success, I think that it still was very surreal to me that people would 
would pay money for something that I created. I think one of our favorite quotes of yours is, it took me no less than 12 years to become an overnight success. Talk to us about the hurdles and the speed bumps in those early years, particularly when you were selling at markets. Yeah, so I was, you know, 21 when I started making it on my dining table and kind of, so I was at the markets, I was doing like jewellery parties, which I would kind of compare to, you know, when your mum would do Avon or Nutrimedics parties in the 80s. So I would hand make this jewellery and people would book parties at their house, they'd invite friends over and, you know, it was, so kind of was doing that three or four nights a week, hand making jewellery every night, working a retail job nine to five, Monday to Friday, and then selling at the Bono markets. And I just had no no idea, like I knew how to build a brand and I knew how to you know, create, but I didn't know how to run a business at that point. And even, you know, four or five years on from that, after I'd launched at Fashion Week, successfully got myself into $80,000 worth of debt, but it built a brand profile. So I think my mindset back then was like, you know, I just, I just need to make more money and then it will be okay. But it doesn't matter how much money you make on a, a brand and profile front, if you don't have a business structure on the back end, you're just kind of digging your hole deeper. So I think that was kind of my biggest trip up in those early years. I serendipitously met my business partner, I think in 2007, and he, you know, we were in business together till the business closed and we, we didn't have a loss-making year since he came on board and it was very much a partnership of, you know, I worked very much right brain and creative and he was very logistics and left brain and it was a, a great meeting in a commercial creative partnership. So complete credit to, to him for that. I'm going to take you back a little bit because I really do want to explore the experience of being 24 years old and 80 grand in debt. How do you remember that time? Do you remember it with a sense of fear or a sense of shame or was it more just I'm building this, I'm going to have to be in the red for a little bit and eventually I'll get back into the black? Yeah, I mean, I think 90% of the time that was my thought process, like, oh, this is just temporary but I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. So I think that was a bit of a, a fantasy that I just told myself that this this is only temporary and I'll get out of this debt. And then it just got to the point so that my debt was actually across five credit cards and at the end the bank wouldn't, wouldn't give me any more money and rightly so. And it kind of got to the point where all I could afford to eat was like baked bean jaffles and if an order came in, I like literally if it was for three pairs of earrings, I'd then go to the bead shop and buy just enough beads to make those three pairs of earrings. So it kind of was... I knew I had a few weeks left before it, it, it was all dried up. But, you know, on the on the front end, and this is probably a time before social media, but people would have looked on and just thought it was it was booming. So, yeah, it, it was a, a mindset that I think more so at night and I think anxiety comes on, you know, anxiety is not a nine-to-five type of thing. It, it comes on in, in the, the dawn and the, you know, the midnight hours. So I think, it, you know, when the sun set, there was a lot of anxiety, but through the day it was like just keep going. Did you let anybody in? Did you tell anyone the financial stress that you were under? Because 24 is such a young age. Like I'm 26 now, so I know I'm still young. But looking back to how I was then, even over the last couple of years, I think so much maturity happens in your mid-20s. Did you tell your parents? Do you tell your partner at the time or your friends? Or did you hold all of that stress and anxiety in yourself? I didn't tell anyone. You know, I think when it got to the end point where I knew I only had a few weeks left of survival, I guess, I really started to drop that guard and would really tell anyone that was listening. And it was more so in a way of, hey, if you know anyone that is looking to get involved in a fashion business, or if you know anyone that kind of works on the business side, like I literally, I would tell anyone. And I think, you know, as women in business, or maybe it's an Australian thing or a combination of both, we we have this thing where we don't want to tell people what we need for fear of 
whatever the, the fear is. And, you know, people might think we're not enough or we're a failure or, or whatever that might be. But I think, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I just told everyone that, that would listen. And as it turned out, someone introduced me to a gentleman who had a, it's actually the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company. And he had daughters my age at the time. And, you know, I went in and kind of presented to him and I told him the brand story. And, you know, I was so that the chair I was sitting on in his office was worth more than my car. Like it was just like this whole nother level of, you know, of, of commerce. So, you know, I kind of presented it to him and I said, you know, and I'm in $79,998 worth of debt, like bumping that $2 off would kind of, you know, soften the blow a bit. And he's like, okay. So we kind of went through everything. He's like, you know, like I'd really, I'd be really interested to, um, to get involved. You know, I can clear your debt for you. Here's what we can bring to the table as, you know, a supporting business. And I kind of, and he, he said, you know, that night I'll, I'll send over a one page contract to kind of outline everything and you take a week to think about it. And I was just in such a state of lack of perspective. So I had this one pinhole view of like, just get out of debt. Like that's, that was all I could really see. And so he sent the contract over and I signed it on the spot and put it on my desk and just was on the countdown till the following week where I could exchange contracts with him and be out of debt. And in a way, I'm very confident that the universe eavesdrops on everything that we do. And so that was a Friday. On the, the next Saturday morning, my phone rang and it was actually a, my area manager for one, one of my retail jobs. And he said, oh, hey, I see you doing this jewelry thing. I've, I've changed companies now. I'm working for a surf jewelry company. And the new CEO, he's you know, just taken over. He's really interested in having you design a women's jewelry range for him. And so I flew up and met with the CEO. And you know, it, it didn't go great at the start. I was like, this is a bit of a disaster. And anyway, he, he liked what I presented, flew me back up before the end of the week to present a second round of creative. And he took me out to lunch and he said, so tell me like, what's going on? What's this about the world's business you got going on? And I told him, I said, but you know, I've come this far and I, I know it could be so much more, but I've got myself into $80,000 worth of debt. And, you know, but it's all okay. I found this investor who's going to clear my debt. And the CEO at the time, he turned in and he said, so what does he want in return for his investment? I said, oh, it's fine. He only wants 51% of the company. And he kind of, when he'd asked the question, he was eating a, a chicken sandwich and I could see him like almost choke on his, <laughs> his chicken and avocado. And excuse my language, but he said, if you sign that contract, he said, it'll be the fucking dumbest thing you ever do in your life. And it was kind of in that moment that I, my perspective just kind of, you know, lifted a bit and I, I couldn't just see the debt. I was like, okay, what does that actually mean? And so I flew back to Sydney that night and was meant to exchange contracts the following day. And I, you know, in my heart of hearts, realized that that wasn't the right thing to do. And so I called the CEO from this jewelry company who ended up, turned out to be my business partner. And I said, you know, I, I took your advice and I didn't take the contract. And he's like, good, you know, good move. And I said, but you know, I don't want any money from you, but would you get involved in my business? He's like, absolutely not. Your business sounds like it's the type where the accounting's run out of a shoebox. I was like, that's absolutely what it is. He's like, no, no, no. So I took the contract job with them and was up in their office every two weeks. And every two weeks, I'd like stick my head in and be like, what about now? Would you consider now? Would you consider now? And I asked him 14 times. And on the 15th time, he turned to me, he said, oh, for God's sake, like, I'll think about it. I said, I'll take that as a half yes. And I, I signed over 30% equity of my company to him. And we were in business together for 11 years. We didn't have a loss making year ever since he came on board. He turned the debt around in six months. So it was completely, you know, and, and in his words, it was always a good brand. I just wasn't, at, you know, 25 at the time running the business correctly. So, you know, I think it pays to tell people what you need and really keep 
that perspective open rather than just honing in on what we think is, you know, this pass or fail or this right or wrong. It's like, no, so much is being presented. We just usually miss it. You told Forbes a couple of years ago, my first milestone was to create a brand that people wanted to be part of. It's not as tangible to gauge as a financial milestone, but it was the reason I started the brand. How did you know that you'd achieved this? Like, how do you measure that? Yeah, I think, well, the way I kind of look at it is, you know, before digital, you know, so the traditional way would be this brand hierarchy. So the brand or a brand or business would talk talk to their consumer in a way. So marketing will talk to their consumer. Then the digital landscape kind of flattened that in a way. So the consumer and brand would talk with each other. And then I think what social media allowed us to do is kind of overlay this vulnerability. And so you can kind of talk you know, more in conversation and with a lot more vulnerable storytelling. And what I found when we started to do that with our consumer and our consumer would speak that way back to us, not only that though, but our consumers started speaking with each other. And when that happens, as you guys know, you know, a community starts to form. And I think that for me was the milestone to be able to see that this brand, because we had people in that community that didn't even buy jewellery. It wasn't about the jewellery. It was about our values and our common interests and our you shared perspective on life and kind of was bringing these like-minded people together. And I think for me, that was the biggest milestone around what a brand actually was. I love that so much. And I agree with you. I think it's so important. I want to know a very sugary question. The answer to this question, I would love to hear, what is it like to see your creations worn by the likes of Drew Barrymore, Rihanna, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Eva Mendes, and even in the second Sex and the City movie on one of the characters there? What is that like? What goes through your head when you see your art being worn by some of the most powerful and influential women in the world? I mean, it's it's surreal. To this day, it's still surreal, you know, and I mean, to have it on Sex and the City was such a huge thing for us. I mean, Sex and the City 2 was absolutely shit film. It was absolutely terribly awful. But for us, I think, you know, Sex and the City specifically, nothing before Sex and the City or nothing after as a as a brand and as a, you know, a, a fashion entity, has there been anything that you can kind of affiliate with in, in that way? And for us, and especially on that film, they did a, a coffee table book after for every outfit that was in the film. So that instantly put us in an archive alongside Chanel, Marc Jacobs, Louis Vuitton. Like it was just a, such an incredible opportunity for us. So that was amazing. Obviously, when people like Taylor Swift and Beyonce, like that was just next level for me, like incredible. But I think, you know, in, in contrast, even, you know, obviously celebrities have stylists and, you know, it's, it's all placed and, and things like that. But you see a woman walking down the street wearing one of our pieces is almost more exciting to me because you're like, she's gone into the store, she's saved up for it. That's her choice. So yeah, it's, it's a very, very surreal, surreal feeling. Looking back, what were the best memories of that time? Did you celebrate the wins enough? I asked myself that a lot. I, I probably would say no. I don't. I don't think we did. I think you know, a lot of people are like, what's what's your one piece of advice to stop burnout or stop you know for for entrepreneurs? And I'm like, you can give as much advice as you want, but until you burn out yourself or until you stop, until something happens that makes you stop and reflect, I don't think you would ever really celebrate enough in a way. I know for me, it was like, what's next? All right, what are we working on? And in a creative business, the pipelines are so long. You know, what, when I'm creating, it doesn't hit retail stores for nine to 12 months after. So you're kind of always living a year ahead, which is not good for present moment or not good for, you know, celebrating in the moment. So I think if I was to look back, my favorite memories, definitely the team. We had just such an incredible group of women over the years work on the brand and to work with people 
you know, to, to name a brand after yourself, like how modest is that? But then to, you know, bring people in to who graciously want to show up to work every day to build your dream is just, that takes a, an incredible type of person. And so to work alongside incredible women and a few guys that, you know, incredible team of women like that was just incredible. Did you like being a boss? Was that a level of power that was kind of natural to come to you? Are you a naturally born leader or was it a situation that you felt quite uncomfortable in? I think I like to think there's two different types of leaders, especially in our business. So I think I was an inspirational leader. So I kind of came in, obviously, as the creative director, you kind of set the, the big vision and the, the emotional connection. And so I think I was an inspirational leader, but I'm a terrible people manager, like, like so bad, like almost like it's I'm a detriment to the company as a people manager. So sometimes my business <laughs> partner's like, how, how about you sit this one out and, you know, we'll, we'll get the general manager in to do this. So terrible people manager, but I think I'm a, I think I, I hold space in a way. And I think that comes from, from my creative as a, a more inspirational leader, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. I want to know, you were called a breakout star from the New York Times. You were profiled by the likes of Vogue and Forbes, as I said before. What does that coverage do to your ego? I think it just makes imposter syndrome speak a little louder because, you know, you'd read this and it's almost like you're reading about someone else. And obviously it's so gracious and and so lovely and did incredible things for our business. But I have a real hard time taking it on board as me. And, you know, again, when you name a business after yourself, you rightly or wrongly get all the public praise. But if it was just Samantha Wills as a breakout star, you know, she'd still be sitting at a dining room table, still eating baked bean jaffles. So I think, you know, you can't take it on too much at all. It took hundreds of people worked on that brand. And every time the Samantha Wills name was mentioned, it didn't become my name in the end. We had people call me SW because it was too confusing. It was like, all right, well, Samantha Wills is allocated to the brand and you become SW. So it kind of, um, you separate it from it in a way and bit of an identity crisis at times I think that might have caused but yeah I think it's it's equal parts imposter syndrome and then equal parts you're like that's completely about the team and less about me. How do you feel about the decision that you made very very early on to name the brand after yourself? I imagine it's a difficult one. There are positives in that it's so completely you and there's probably a level of connection and a level of intimacy that couldn't have come if you had named it something else but then on the other hand the brand does become you and those lines are blurred. Do you ever think back to that decision to name the brand Samantha Wills and feel regret or is it just not even worth thinking about it that way? I mean, yes and no. You know, as as you know, I closed the business. I didn't sell it. And I think if I had called it anything else other than Samantha Wills, I, I probably would have sold it. The reason for that, one, I didn't want to sell my name and I didn't have the heart. You know, I poured so much of my life into building this brand. I didn't have the heart to kind of hand it over and just see what someone else would do with that. But I think on the the pro side, you know, it, as you said, it's very emotive. Like it's, it's a human voice. It, it's a much easier to form a connection with a human than to kind of personify a brand name. So there's pros and cons. I actually wrote an article on it on my blog recently for anyone that's going through that process at the moment. And I think you have to be ready to front when not only when things go right and you get all the public praise, but when things go wrong, you, you're the one that's, you know, I remember if an order went missing, they'd be like, Samantha hasn't sent my order from the warehouse. And it's this very personal, everything about the business is like, you haven't done it. And you have to be ready to kind of take that on. So yeah, there's pros and cons. I think looking back now and and where I am now and what I'm kind of moving into next, that's it. It's such a brand currency to to have the 15 years of that behind my name. But 
you know, you don't go into something thinking of, of the exit strategy, or I definitely didn't at 21, and especially naming it after myself, I did think it was something that I would have forever. But things change and, you know, you, you move with it. You just touched on your decision to close the business. So I want to take us back to this day in 2017. You are walking through the airport and you realize you have just completed your 100th flight between JFK and Sydney. You sit down and you pen a letter to your business partner at the time. What was going through your mind? I was just, I was in such a, just ungrounding, which is very obvious to not have your feet on the ground if you're doing 100 flights between Sydney and New York consistently. So I was was doing six weeks New York, 10 days Sydney consistently for probably nine years and then flying to our other offices in, you know, in China and and London and, and all over. So I was spending much more time in the air. But I think on top of that, probably like early 2016, if I look back on it now with hindsight, my heart just kind of was drifting away from from jewellery and from jewellery design. And I think as a creative and especially as a creative namesake founder, that's a really scary thing to admit to yourself. And I just, I, I wouldn't and couldn't. So, you know, I'm like, at the time, I just remember thinking, oh, no, this is just a creative block. This will pass. And, you know, it just kind of got a bit dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And I think that, you know, I, by the end of 2017, I designed 12,000 pieces of jewellery. So it was something I could do logistically with my eyes closed. But I think as a creative, if you're designing just with your hands and not with your heart, that's where there's a really big disconnect. So I think, you know, if you compile all that onto that moment in the airport, it's it's a breaking point in a way. And I just remember like sitting in the airport lounge, just like crying my face off and just trying to get down on paper. And I, I wrote actually a letter of resignation and the, the purpose behind it was like, I wanted to step out of the day-to-day of the business and take a more board role or, a, you know, an advisory position. And so I wrote this letter of resignation to my business partner, which essentially was to myself as well. And he understood and he's like, you know, 13 years in, you know, this is really you know, not shocking kind of thing. And he's like, so we'll, you know, hire a new head designer, we'll hire a new creative director, we'll kind of, you know, replace you in the day-to-day. And as the universe works, if something's not meant to be, it will be roadblocked at every angle. And no matter what we tried to do, it just, it was a red light. It was like we couldn't recruit the right people. It wasn't the right timing and just everything was roadblocked. And so by 2018, I just was just at a loss. And so I thought my decision was going to be between do I move back to Australia and, you know, reinvest and kind of try and find that passion and get that back in Australia? Or do I stay in New York and kind of build a new creative team around me there? And I said to my business partner, I'm just going to take a week out and just try and get myself together. And I went up to a retreat in upstate New York called Omega. It's like a holistic meditation retreat thing. And I thought, you know, I'll take a week out there and just kind of get it together. And my business partner and I sent emails to each other every quarter, which were more observational emails and so nothing to do with the P&L. It was all, you know, observation of the business. And he was due to send me one while I was up there. And he, you know, kind of touched base and said, do you, want, do you want it while you're up there or do you want to wait to get back? And I was like, no, send it up. You know, more information I have to kind of process the better. And so I was having dinner one night in this little cabin thing and then walking back to my cabin on campus. And there's all these kind of winding roads around campus. And I was like, oh, I've got to download my emails. I downloaded my emails and stopped walking when his email hit my inbox. And the title of his email is The Business is at a Crossroads. And essentially, he was saying to me, you know, I know you're having a really hard time and you have been for a while. You know, whatever you choose to do, we as a business will support you. And so the title was Business at a Crossroads. And I looked up to where I'd stopped walking. I was standing in actual physical crossroads. And I was like, oh, that's that's strange. And then the road to my left was kind of the main road around campus, which is like the logical, you know, path to take. It was, you know, a tarred road, had these big pine trees. And then the road to my right was this bark chip kind of path that wound through a a flower garden and the veggie patch. And it was kind of the more creative path to take, I guess. 
And I stood there at that crossroads and I put my hand on my heart and I heard this voice. I felt felt a voice and I use the word feel specifically because I felt this voice just say, it's time to close. And it said it like that. It was like, it's time to close. It was so calm. And I kind of looked around. There was no one around me. And I just knew. I just knew it was the first time I'd ever thought that that was even an option for me. And it was in that moment. And it was like an aligning of external circumstance and internal intuition. I was like, it's time to close. And that was how I came to that decision. I think what you've just said then is exactly why Zara and I have found your story so interesting because I think in so many ways you are the antithesis of the typical entrepreneur story that we see play out in the mainstream media and that you did have a successful profitable business until the very end and you made the decision to walk away to keep some sense of groundedness I'm guessing and to keep some sense of self Why has it been so important for you to tell your story so candidly, so transparently, warts and all? I think I look back to, you know, when I was first starting out and, you know, 2003, 2004, and the the main communication of inspiration was through monthly magazines. And, you know, the the fashion magazines had kind of come out and I couldn't wait and I'd rip out the designer profiles and kind of put them on my inspiration board. And I remember looking back and in one way they were so inspiring, but in another way they didn't reflect back to me anything about what my journey looked like. They were, you know, these glossy, beautiful styled images. And then I was there at like four o'clock in the morning making bloody jewelry with my hands like ripped apart and just like crying into into the beads. So um, I think it was, you know, if I look at my journey and, you know, probably, I don't know, probably 12 to 15 years in, I, I felt I had a responsibility to kind of, you know, speak more candidly and honest about that because it wasn't helpful. And you kind of, you know, I call it this compare and despair. And especially now with social media, you, you see, you know, what everyone is doing. And it, it's so easy to get lost in this vortex of, of comparing your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20, or, you know, comparing your reality to someone else's highlight reel. And it's it's really dangerous. So, you know, I wanted to share the the real story and the vulnerableness of it, because I think it's it's important. And it's the truth. When you made that decision to close the business in 2018, you told the world that it was a concoction of exhaustion and timing. And in November 2019, a lot of our listeners will probably remember this. You penned a really searing blog post about your health and you revealed that you had been suffering with stage four endometriosis for a long time and you had a really complicated history with chronic pain that you had ignored. We read that post again this morning just before we jumped on mic and we wondered, did your health play a more pivotal role in your decision to walk away than you kind of first indicated? No, I don't think at the time. I think, you know, very honestly, I was just like, I'll deal with that later, I'll deal with that later. So it wasn't, it definitely wasn't a factor in that. I think though that closing created a lot of space in my life to really look at what needed attention and what wasn't or what I hadn't given attention to for the last 15 years and you know I talk a lot about anything in our life is is energy right so if it's this gray energy whether it be you know our health or our social media or, or these things that take up space until we create some space in our mind and in our hearts for new things to arrive that just just takes up takes up the space and I hadn't allowed any clearing of time in that instance to to look at my health so it wasn't a yeah it wasn't a decision in closing but it definitely was an opening to address it afterwards One element of that blog post that we just found so incredibly interesting was this passage here. You wrote, somewhere in the 90s, I absorbed the core belief that women had to make life easy for men. Don't be a hindrance to them. Be easy to get along with. I look back now and see an unlimited amount of resources I took this belief on from. 
talk to us about that core belief and how I guess you kind of reckoned with that and how you managed to turn around and point to it and be like, oh shit, I've had this wrong and I've had this toxic belief ingrained in my brain for so much of my life. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, everyone has a belief system and, you know, a lot of it is, well, it starts in our childhood and whatever we see and hear and, you know, in there kind of gets caught in, in this, I guess, like a net is the best way to, to describe it. It kind of gets caught in there. Unless we clear that out, that remains how we make decisions or how we view different things. So in that case, you know, I look back at barbecues at, in, in the 80s and, you know, it might have been my dad and his friends being, oh, no, that's a woman's job or something like as innocent as, you know, it's not a malicious statement, but, you know, you overhear these things. You're like, all right, noted, that's that's a woman's job. Or, you you know, you open Dolly magazine when, you know, 13 or 14 years old and it's like how to lure the guy or how to trap your crush kind of thing or, you know, how to be how to be the cool girl. And you're like, all right, well, I've got to be this to, to get that. And, you know, I grew up in quite a religious household in, in my very early childhood. And a lot of, you know, as I said in that article, a lot of preachings in church on, on the Sunday were, you know, about the man is the head of the household and the woman has to, you know, obey and all this kind of like subliminal, like there wasn't one thing that you take on board. It's kind of this building and this layering of experiences and conversations and media and, you know, opinions that we kind of take on board. And, you know, in 2015, I was in a relationship for three years and I'd been on the pill my entire adult life and that relationship uh, fell apart. And, you know, so when I, he, he, so he was cheating on me and I, when I found out my world just went entirely dark and I think, you know, I was operating at such a level professionally, you know, jetting around everywhere and just so busy that it's kind of like a Jenga tower. Like there's so many moving parts, but when one thing falls out, the whole tower falls over. And for me, that was finding out that he was cheating on me. And I went into this like darkness and I kind of describe it as, you know, when you're a little kid and you want to jump in the deep end of the pool to touch the bottom and you kind of like take this big breath and you jump and you're like, oh no, it's too far down. So you kind of come back up and you're kind of hovering around that middle because it's just, it's too far and too painful to kind of touch the bottom. And I think personal darkness is a, is a lot like that. And I know for me at that time it was. And, you know, when I was finally able to touch the bottom and to touch the bottom means to, you know, get all the truth and to, you know, sit with the real messiness of it. And I had to sit in front of my boyfriend a few weeks after I found out and I said, well, how long has this affair been going on? And he turned to me and he said, which one? And, you know, I kind of put my hand over my heart and I said, well, how many have there been? And he said, at least eight. And as abhorrent and as shitty and as just awful as that behavior was and is, and it's awful, it was my reply to him that really showed me why I was in, in the darkness. And I think in relation to the question about, you know, why we have to, you know, kind of why I thought I had to mold myself to make men's life easier kind of thing. And so when he said eight and I turned to him and I said, please don't leave me please don't leave me. And, you know, professionally, my my entire professional life was about women's empowerment. And I fought the good fight for it. And I was steadfast and authentic about that. And, you know, the core of empowerment is self-worth. And so my professional self-worth was up here. But my personal self-worth somewhere along the line ended up kind of down in the gutter. And I think that experience was you know, this is before I launched the Samantha Wills Foundation. And what was on my path was was to launch that foundation. But for that to happen, my self-worth needed to be aligned professionally and personally. And I think that was my biggest wake-up call to really kind of snap out of why do you feel this way about yourself? Why would you accept that? Why would you reply like that? 
So I think that's really what started my journey back to kind of start to undo all these like little things that had happened throughout my life. And it's not uncommon. I think it's, you know, we look, you see teen movies in the 80s and 90s. Like you look at that and it's no wonder women take on, you know, such the belief systems that we do. So, so that was a very long answer to get to the point, but that was kind of the pivotal point for me no. that made me look back on it. I mean, firstly, thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to ask you a second to that. When you mentioned self-worth and you touch on how low your self-worth was in comparison to sort of what your professional self-worth might have been. Do you think that had an impact on why you ignored pain in your body for so long? Quite possibly. You know, I think we're just programmed to get on with things in a way. And I think it's, you know, uh, and as it relates to, um, you know, endometriosis is related to your monthly cycle. And I think, you know, again, if you look at how you've been brought up in the media, it's like, oh, your period is meant to be painful or, you know, you get cramps. Oh, I get cramps too. So you're like, but what is the comparative? So you kind of just you're like, all right, well, I know it's not meant to be fun, so, but what is the level of that? So I think it's it's not having that kind of yardstick to to realise, so you just take it on board as, and, and soldier on in a way. It really does sound like ever since you began getting treatment for your endometriosis and went through that very traumatic but also very important surgery that you have really transformed your relationship with yourself. I want to read out another passage. You wrote in that blog post, it's vile and horrible the way I've spoken to and treated my body, ignoring her when she was trying to get my attention for so long and when she was screaming out in pain. Instead of caring for her, I just tried to continually numb her, completely ignoring her as she screamed out for help. How, since you wrote that blog post and you let the world in, have you started to love yourself more and be kinder to your body? I think it was just I'm more conscious of the internal narrative. And I'm like, if you said those words out loud, we we say it so frequently, I think we don't even know. It's just white noise to us now, but we we absorb it. So I think just being more conscious of that, um, you know, if if I put on a pair of jeans that don't fit rather than whinging about it, I, you know, I, I catch myself before I let that thought go on um, replay and it doesn't just relate to our health it's it's image it's it's all these different things um and you know I kind of looked at it as if you spoke to your friend that way you would have no friends left or you know if my little puppy dog was screaming out every month in pain I wouldn't ignore him like I would do anything to make sure that he's comfortable but I'm like why wouldn't we do that for ourselves so you know I, I again back to the long-held belief system it's a lot of work to undo to to really get in it's it's like all these different vines wrapped around each other and there's a lot of unpeeling to do but I think it starts with those the little words and the little words we use even within our within our minds so just being much more conscious of that what do your priorities look like now what fills your cup and what makes you happiest I think now definitely having creative freedom and creative to be able to be creative without the need for a commercial outcome right now is a real welcome for me. And it kind of is what happened, you know, when I first started making jewellery, it was just for the love of it. And I think over 15 years, you know, there's one point there we're doing 22 collections a year, which I was designing entirely myself. So it takes, definitely takes the, the fun and creative out of it. And Everyone thinks it's a creative company, but I'm like, really, it's a logistics and production company at that scale because you're kind of given this matrix to be like, all right, we need three rings at this price point and three earrings and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, to take that kind of commercial element out and just sit with creativity just for the fun of it is is a real treat at the moment. One element, I wasn't planning on asking you about this, Sam, but 
one element that seems to be really omnipresent throughout your life, and that I think we've touched on multiple times in this interview, is spirituality and the very important and very powerful role that plays in your life. Have you always been a spiritual person or is it something that you've tapped into in your 30s maybe? Yeah, so I, as I said, grew up in a very religious household and I just, even as a kid, knew it wasn't for me. But I think it was so present in my life. You know, I went to a Christian school and, uh, you know, church on Sunday and youth group and all these things. I just didn't realize I thought everyone did that. That's what I, you know, knew my world to be um, in, in my childhood. And so I think that as soon as I could get out of that, I, I did. And it just never, ever sat right with me. And for many years, I was angry at it. And I didn't, you know, I was angry that that, that was my life. But I think, you know, probably in my 20s, I really started to tap into astrology and kind of these more spiritual practices that in, in one way I was brought up to believe were kind of quite evil practices, um, especially astrology and, you know, things like that. So kind of trying to make peace with that was one thing. But then when I was able to do that, definitely a much more spiritual person. And I can almost see how it does link into the basis of religion without the whole, you know, narrative of religion. So I guess the answer is yes, I have always been quite spiritual, but definitely more so from my, you know, adulthood onwards. What comes next for Samantha Wills? What are the goals you've set for yourself? Uh, so, the, so I've written my first book, which is out in March next year, which is a business memoir, which kind of parallels, you know, the highlight reel and kind of what everyone would have seen about the brand, but then also what is required from personal sacrifice or that. So that's been a process to say the least. I, I kind of liken it to you know, being on a therapist couch as well as a church confessional. You kind of, it's, it's a bit of both. So that's out yep, next year. And then I'm doing a lot of online curriculum at the moment. So I really kind of want to take everything I've learned over the past 15 plus years and and put it into a format that's helpful for other entrepreneurs and, and creative entrepreneurs. So I'm trying to get all that yeah down on paper at the moment. Sounds like you're incredibly busy, which is no surprise at all. With all of this in mind, Samantha, how do you define success in your own life? What is success to you? Yeah, I think that has changed definitely over the course of my adult life. But right now, I think it's creative freedom and the absence of anxiety. And when I say the absence of it, I don't mean entirely, but it's it's making those gaps between anxious moments a lot longer. And that to me, that's success to me right now. Samantha Wills, thank you so much for coming on our show and for being so generous with your stories and your time. You've had an incredible few years and we are just so grateful that you've been here and we can't wait to read this book in March. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Samantha Wills. If you're wanting more from Samantha, go and follow her on Instagram at Samantha Wills. If you enjoyed this chat, we also recommend you listen to our other In Conversation episodes with Kylie Brown and Michelle Battersby. We will pop links to both of those chats in our show notes. As for us, the best way to support the show is click follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or simply recommend this episode to a friend. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears for another summer In Conversation episode of Shameless on Thursday. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish 
stylish if you want to say it quickly, style-ish if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.